we've been talking in the <clears throat> last few parts of this talk um, about the ways and some of what's involved in how the imaginal sensing with soul uh, frees us from dukkha, relieves dukkha, um, dissolves dukkha, drains the dukkha out of a certain situation or uh, thing that's happening. And I hope, again, that you have felt and experienced that for yourself in your, in your practices with, with, this, with the imaginal. One begins to get a sense, um, a, a palpable felt sense and conviction of um, not just the fact that uh, sensing with soul can at times reduce dukkha, it's often what, what uh, one of the uh, results, if you like, or um, issues from it. But we begin to get a kind of sense and a conviction uh, of the necessity of the imaginal dimension, the necessity of sensing the soul, the necessity um, f- for the soul of sensing the soul, but also the necessity for our well-being and, and the necessity... Um, in terms of uh, 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 a relief from suffering, or rather just the the, the prevention of suffering by, uh, if you like, ensuring that the imaginal realm is open to us and accessible by practicing sensing the soul, by having that facility and that access. Sometimes we see... Um, that some dukkha uh, is locked into place with when there is not the access and uh, to the imaginal dimension when there isn't that facility and flexible flexibility and sometimes we even sense that dukkha arises when there is no uh, when there is the absence of the imaginal dimension when that door is shut that that very shutting of that door the absence um, allows certain dukkha to arise. And and also in relationship. So sometimes someone, um, we're, we're with someone in, in some kind of relationship, it could be any kind of relationship, and in that moment, perhaps, or perhaps longer, in the stretch of the relationship, we sense that uh, they are seeing us, but they're seeing us in a kind of flatly human way. They're not seeing more than our flatly human uh, dimension. And in that, we can feel like this person has missed us. They've missed, actually, our personhood, the fullness of our personhood, um, because they've not seen the soul dimension. They've not kind of acknowledged that. They're not sensing us with soul. They've missed us, missed our personhood, missed the fullness of it and the fullness of our humanity. So it's not that soul is one thing and human is something else. The fully human, um, I would say, uh, embraces or includes the, the soul dimension. Of course it does. They're not really different at all. But we can feel the pain and the dukkha of not being seen of being missed when the soul dimension is missed in the way that we are being uh, looked at, perceived. 
and and conversely, sometimes it's it's exactly being seen imaginarily by another, being sensed with soul. It's that that heals or begins healing or contributes to healing um, as much as, and sometimes more than, um, another level of being seen. So that, you know, sometimes someone sees us through uh, a way of looking that though though it's um, uh, trying to give love and compassion or encouragement or protection to some aspect or feeling or character within us, um, it mixed up with that is a reification. And it's reifying that very part um, that it wants to... Uh, uh, give give compassion to or love, encouragement, protection, whatever. It's rarefying that, and perhaps it's shrinking us to that. Uh, there is then the absence of the imaginal. There is not the middle way. Something is being rarefied, and if it's if it's shrinking us, then there is not the concertina, and there's certainly not the imaginal concertina. The sense of I I am. Uh, I have, you have, a whole concertina, as we described, and we went through the list of the elements, the aspects of the imaginal. Um, you, you are uh, a whole concertina of available images. Actually, that concertina is infinite. One senses that, so that one isn't um, selecting just one or two and reifying them. They're all theatre, and they're all available. So sometimes we are looked at in this way... We, uh, there's all the good intention of love and compassion and as I said wanting to protect us or encourage, encourage something. But something there is not imaginable. It's, it's rarefying and perhaps it's shrinking us to that. And even, um, so it's gone out of fashion now, but that kind of inner child work that was um, quite popular in psychotherapeutic circles probably still is in some, in some um, streams of psychotherapy. Uh, and even when someone recognizes or is talking to that child part with a lot of love and compassion and recognizes, oh, this is a child part, or this is a young part, or this is a vulnerable part, and even, and even they might think and communicate, I know you're also an adult and you're also strong and you're also capable. Even then, when they still have the, this is only part of you, um... And despite the intention of the healing, there's something that's not doesn't quite do the trick there sometimes because the soul is not seen. Uh, there's reification and this yeah, kind of reification, let's say, and 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 oftentimes a kind of narrowing. There's, at least there's not the imaginal concertina. Let's put it that way. And in that, we feel unseen. Or, the, or if we're doing, if we're looking that way uh, at someone else, they feel unseen. So certainly, some aspect uh, feels seen. They feel that some part is being seen and acknowledged, and, and, and perhaps they're appreciative of that. But uh, they also, person also can feel like something is not seen. Or this is frustrating. And what is seen is seen in a way that actually it lacks the, the full power of the healing potential. Full power of that kind of um, magic that can be communicated and the healing that can come with that and the freeing and the kind of liberation that can come with that um, when the imaginal is opened, when the sensing with soul 
So it lacks power because it's because it's rarefied, because it's flat. It's flat land view, flat person view, flat human view. So we sense when sometimes sometimes I don't know if you if you recognise what I'm talking about here in your experience, or you might feel in the way that you have sometimes looked on another friend or, or, or whoever. We are being, in these times, if we feel we're on the receiving end, we're being somehow approached through too narrow and too rigidly held um, uh, a paradigm, a psycho, psychological paradigm, psychological conceptual framework, one that doesn't recognize the daemon doesn't see the, the demon there. So there's some compassion, but it's not actually it's not actually as full and multi-dimensional and rich and kind of um, multifaceted as it could be. And it's it's somehow too solid sometimes. Sometimes we feel, or the other person feels, if we're looking at them this way, in this kind of, from a soul perspective, a kind of incomplete way, in a, in a truncated way, in a, in, in uh, we've cut off certain dimensions. And this person says, I, I want that holiness in my suffering. I want the holiness in my weirdness. I want the, the, the holiness in my pathology to be seen to be even celebrated, to be revered. Yes, I know there's dukkha in that. Yes, I know I'm not completely clear about that. And I know there's other parts too, but there's something I want you to be seen. I, w- I want to be seen here. I want the, the soul to be seen. Even that um, aspect, that daemon that has with it its arrogance or whatever. I want, I want, I want you to see the soul of that, the soulfulness of that. Yes, I know it's problematic. Yes, I know it's a little, uh, you know, has its problems socially or whatever. Because I want to see, I want you to see, or they want us to see that the daemons struggle as well, the daemons' brilliance, the daemons' beauty, whatever it is, to be seen, celebrated, even revered. Remember, reverence is part of the imaginal perception, the constellation of the imaginal perceiving. But this seeing, the celebrating, this reverence, this revering, um, is not reified. It's not a reification, because it's imaginal. It's the imaginal middle way. It's got that theatre aspect to it. So we're going a stage further and actually pointing out the suffering of the neglect of the imaginal dimension. The suffering, the dukkha that ensues uh, and is kind of locked into place perhaps um, when we don't sense with soul. Or when we are not sensed with soul in relationship, when a relationship isn't that full. And I think I've said before, I can't remember what retreat it was, perhaps the... um, Hermits and lovers, uh, you know, we. I, I realize that depression is a complicated business, and there's not one kind of depression uh, for human beings. Um, but I would say that some kinds of depression, or some periods of depression, um, actually are instances of, or we could say, are caused by, and then, and then, of course, like all these uh, things, they kind of loop 
around. They, they get into a kind of stuck place. Um, but they're actually caused by a lack of eros, a cutting off of eros, an inhibition, a disconnection from eros, and of soul-making. Nothing is alive as uh, imaginal, uh, as fantasy in the good sense. Everything is flat, and the, 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 the soul is deprived of its um, fire, if we want to use a fire uh, image, or it's deprived of its juice, its juiciness, its moisture, its water. The flatness leads to depression. The, the soul-making dynamic is arrested, is ground to a halt, is inhibited, is restricted. Eros is not opening and penetrating. There's not the dynamic there, and, and there's a depression. So, and again, I hope you can recognize what, what, um, what I'm pointing to here in your life and in your practice. And um, if not, again, this is one of those uh, aspects I feel be really worth considering, reflecting <clears throat> with this idea on your experience, on your past, on your history, <clears throat> and, you know, very lightly, um, perhaps even on, on the history and the past, or the situation of a friend, or, or someone you know. Because it's through reflection, through actually making, bringing alive these ideas in your own consciousness, in your own reflection, in your mind, that they, they kind of go deeper and things start to connect um, in your understanding in, in, in the Logos. So I think I said at one point, if I haven't said already, I really want you guys to get the taste of all this, the taste of soul-making, which means experiencing it for, your, for yourself. And, um, and I, I also want you to get the idea of it. Do you get the idea? And getting the idea means also um, really uh, digesting and utilizing and making active and making your own the conceptual framework. Then you, you could actually build it or build build onto it or whatever. But that together, the logos is part of the whole soul making dynamic. So getting the taste and getting the idea. But I'm pointing to right now the necessity um, for us of sensing the soul, of soul making, of imaginally perceiving, perceiving imaginally, um, in order to uh, um, decrease suffering at times, uh, relieve suffering at times, or certain kinds of suffering, certainly, and in order uh, that certain kinds of suffering don't arise. We need that kind of mode of being, or those kinds of mode of being that we call soul-making and sensing with soul. And, to add to that, um, I want to touch on again something I have mentioned before, um, somewhere or other, perhaps in the Reenchanting Cosmos Retreat. Um, you will notice again, as your uh, soul-making progresses, let's say, or, or develop, as you get more, more into this, let's say, um, there will arise when the soul making starts to go deep and starts to really get rich and in in the uh, nooks and crannies in the soil of our being and that soil is turned and tilled and worked and made moist and 
planted uh, with, with seeds in the soul-making process. And the soul-making increases and expands and deepens and, and enriches and all that. And there is, in that process, um, the re-enchantment of our dukkha, which we talked about, I think, I'm pretty sure in the re-enchanting retreat, both Catherine and I talked about it. Um, <coughs> and so important, so, so important, we've touched on it already uh, in, this, in this series. Um, and then as that builds, the re-enchantment of the dukkha, there is, with, with the soul-making uh, dynamic, um, sort of taking up the dukkha itself as as an erotic object, re-enchants it. And then there is the perception that emerges and the idea that emerges, so both the, if you like, the image and the logos, of my dukkha, this dukkha right now, um, being somehow necessary to God. Somehow this suffering in some kind of not fully explicable way is necessary to God, necessary to the Buddha nature, necessary to a divinity. It's a perception and a conception that arises uh, organically, I would say, something like that perception or conception arises organically with inevitably with the deepening of the soul-making process and the soul-making dynamic. So I talked, I think, in one retreat about the Kabbalistic notion of the need on high. In other words, God's need, the divine's need, however you want to uh, put it, the need of the Buddha nature. Uh, but that um, that. Uh, need is in and through the particular, the particular events, currents, um, elements of my existence, your existence, of one's life and one's unique personhood. So the the, the divine need is not just some abstract universal um, thing, nor is it, uh, nor is the divine just this, as, as we've mentioned many times, just this. Um, universal essence of some kind by virtue of which there is a kind of equality of what looks uh, what's ostensibly different this particular and that particular they're all one because they're all of the same essence or divine essence or substance there is that view and the importance of that view we've, we've touched on this before but this need on high that we're talking about now this perception of a need on high and the sensing of the divine and the divine's need in and through the particular, my particulars, the particulars of my personhood, my journey, my life, my story, my dukkha, the elements of my existence, that means my thinking, my intelligence, my emotion, my sensitivity, my body, my this sense door, my that sense door, all of that, my perceiving. That's only possible when the particular is sensed in an imaginal way. This dukkha or that. Then we can actually, it kind of rises to another level where, we, where we, it's not just um, sensed as image, but in and through, or as the sensing it as image expands, sensing it with the soul expands and reaches even deeper, then it senses part of the need on high, then it's necessary to God in some strange way this very difficulty 
So it's a kind of uh, amplification, a deepening of it, of the re-enchantment of the dukkha. But but the, the the suffering or the element that I'm talking about has to be alive um, as an image for us that is soul making in order for that to take place. It's like that being alive as image is is a first step that allows the perception of a, a particular as necessary to God. So, and it's not even only just dukkha. It's like my particular way of thinking or my particular way of perceiving. Sometimes when it's very uh, particular kind of um, sense sensibility or aesthetic or way of feeling beauty or particular relationship with one of the elements or particular sense door or whatever. It's unique to me somehow. Part of my personality and the dukkha. And whatever it is becomes image first and then uh, can can become um, a, the sense of it can become as necessary to God. Um, sometimes it, it's true. One might be uh, this idea of the necessity to God of our uh, particular difficulty or some particular element of my psyche, or the way my mind works, or something in my body. Um, that idea that you're hearing now and maybe you've heard before might then function as a kind of seed or spark to trigger image and uh, we've talked about this before so it's almost like a poetic idea or a, or, or a kind of logos that that's, uh, if you like goes into the mix is taken up by soul making then sparks a kind of imaginal seeing of that very element or of a particular element so it can also work the other way around, or or it can even work that they, they, the, the two happen together. The re-enchanting of the dukkha, or, or the seeing uh, a particular as image, any particular, and uh, the, the, the seeing it, the sensing it, the knowing it as necessary to God, the entertaining of the conception that this particular, or this particular dukkha of mine, is necessary to God. So sometimes they can even occur uh, simultaneously. So really, any order actually. Uh, and and in a, in a way, you could say there's a kind of mutual dependent arising there. The sensing imaginally of a particular an event, a trajectory of one's life, an element of one's existence, a particular uh, dukkha that's uh, there, on the one hand, and the sensing of its necessity to God, we could say those two are dependent, co-arising facets of a single kind of a complex shift or quantum leap of perception, of, of relationship and way of looking, rather than two shifts, uh, one causes the other. I mean, it can occur that way, or they can just be regarded as mutual dependent arisings. Sorry about that. I think I can say that <clears throat> a little clearer. Um, the sense, the perception, the conception of any particular uh, event or element of one's being or narrative in one's life or one's particular unique personhood, the sense of any of that as necessary to God that sense, that perception, that conception uh, will usually arise um, on the basis of uh, 
already perceiving that particular and cons- uh, imaginally sensing it with soul. So with that as a basis, then as it fertilizes more, there's this kind of uh, um, fuller level of perception of its necessity to God. So usually the causality is that way around. Imaginal perception first, and then of this particular, and then that particular as sensed as necessary to God. Sometimes the causality works the other way around, of course. Uh, So we have this idea of something being necessary to God, and that idea, we might hear or read or something, functions as a a seed, a stimulus to uh, open up the perception so that we can perceive something or other, some or other particular uh, as in, uh, perceive it, imagine, sense it was soul. And then the third possibility is that both of them arise together. They, they uh, occur simultaneously. We're really talking about one organic movement of soul-making that affects the perception and the conception. But the usual uh, kind of direction of causality is the imaginal perception first, uh, the sensing with soul of this particular this particular dukkha, this difficulty, this uh, story, this current of being, this element of of my existence, of my mind, of my body, of my psyche, uh, perceiving that imaginally first, and then uh, then uh, then through that imaginal perception, f- fertilizing and enriching more than the sensing of it as necessary to God, the conceiving of it as necessary to God. That's the prob- probably most common order. Of causality. And I talked about too uh, in the past in several retreats about the Kabbalistic notion of tikkun olam. I think I mentioned it on this uh, on this course as well. The healing of the world or the restoration of the world. And in that Kabbalistic ideas, a kind of archetypal, cosmic, psychological, and philosophical metaphor. Um, the Tikkun Olam is, is actually a whole movement. So it includes the very alienation or destruction or chaos or fragmentation or something like that that, um, that asks for a redeeming, a Tikkun, a restoration. So actually, in the bigger picture, the whole thing, the very difficulty, and then the soul-making with respect to that uh, dukkha or difficulty, and then what we do, um, what emerges um, either through duty uh, and, and emerges in action or voice, or just as a, as a shift of perception and way of looking, a re-enchanting, uh, a healing of the world through and, and of existence, of being, of life and death, through the ways that we can now perceive it and conceive of it. And that whole thing, the alienation, the destruction, the fragmentation, the difficulty, the soul-making process in regard to that, and what emerges, what is the fruit or the issue of that uh, soul-making process, whether it emerges in concretized action and voice, or just, uh, so to speak, in in, in the modes of, of, of being, conceiving, and perceiving. All of that is the tikkun olam. 
all of that is this m- mystical movement of really that we find ourselves uh, uh, going through and engaging in, being I- inevitably drawn into in our life and having to deal with or called to deal with. And it's also the movement of the divine. It's a cosmic uh, archetype. Um, now, you know, again, I, I really want to pe- it, repeat it. It's you cannot, I cannot, and and you cannot, and you should not, um, please, foist uh, this kind of idea uh, on anyone or try and convince anyone of this. Um, it emerges uh, this kind of idea of the necessity to God of this whole movement of. Uh, dukkha, soul-making in relation to the dukkha, and then what comes out of that. That idea emerges um, as uh, as an idea, or as a perception, or both, actually, um, with a degree of soul-making. When we can relate to our dukkha in the right way, uh, we, through connecting with it, through the honesty, through the humility, and then beginning to sense it with soul becomes image. Our dukkha becomes imaginal or is imaginally perceived. We imaginally perceive our dukkha. We see it. We sense it with soul. The dukkha is re-enchanted. And also our eros, the very same thing. Again, the eros, we've talked about this many times. The eros becomes uh, an erotic, imaginal object to ourselves. So our very eros is re-enchanted, given dimensionality, and our very process of soul-making. All these, our dukkha, our eros, our soul-making, they all become re-enchanted. They're all sensed with soul. And in that, in in the kind of uh, dynamic of that, over time, at some point, they too are perceived as somehow divine, somehow rooted in the divine, somehow not separate from divinity. We sense, perceive, and conceive that through our dukkha, through our eros, and through our soul-making, we are participating in and through the particulars of our life, including the particular difficulties and struggles and challenges. We are participating in the divine, in and through those particulars. And... At the same time, the divine is participating in and through those particulars in us. The divine is participating in us. Divinity is participating in us. Divinity is being made and created in us. This is necessary to God, necessary to the Buddha nature. So, for some, you know, these may sound very strange, like strange ideas, but, as I said, I think that there's a kind of inevitability here, uh, perhaps, to these, these kinds of perceptions. They're not rigid, ultimate truths. They're perspectives. They're soul-making perceptions. They're conceptions that one can eventually move in and out of. Or finds oneself moving in and out of both. 
some of you, I don't know, how many, how many, but um, will recognize something in all this that's a little bit um, parallel uh, or has analogies to uh, the philosophy of Hegel, um, if you're familiar with that kind of thing. Um, I only recognized this uh, recently. I wasn't that familiar with his, his ideas at all before. Um, and, and sort of realized, oh, there's a kind of... Um, there's a kind of parallel, it seems, in, in kind of what he was trying to get at and in what's emerged in the soul-making logos. Um, it is slightly different, but if... Oh, well, there are many differences, but um, but if you listen to this quote from his uh, Phenomenology of Spirit, it's a very famous uh, book that he wrote, um, uh, for him, the, I have to explain something first, for him the kind of, uh, if you like the central principle or goal or uh, m- movement of evolution of the whole of existence really was towards what he called spirit or um, rational being or spiritual rational being. Um, I, I can't and I also don't want to right now explain quite what he meant by that, but if he... I'll, I'll quote him, and then and then we'll substitute soul for what he says. Um, so he said, spiritual, rational being um, demands the seriousness, the anguish, the patience, and the labor of the negative. And we could, as I said, there's, there's parallels here. Uh, I, a little bit interesting in um, in what we're uh, creating and discovering as a soul-making logos and some of the way Hegel was thinking. Um, so if we substitute um, soul for his, whatever he means by spiritual rational being, which is more than it properly sounds at first, but um, soul, soul-making, demands the seriousness, the anguish, the patience, and the labor of the negative. So again, there's a, there's a, a necessity there to soul of of our dukkha, and again, really, I, I don't want to um, I, I absolutely not communicate a dogma or a, a kind of um, this is a, a religious belief or something like that. Um, it's rather, as I said, that I just want to point out the probable inevitability of such a view emerging, such a sense, perception, and conception. And also, turning it around a little bit, we could say, um, rather, uh, alternative, alternatively, this view or concept supports soul-making. So that the way we are, uh, um, if, if we have that conception of the possibility of uh, the re-enchantment of dukkha and the possibility of sensing it with soul and the possibility of it being somehow necessary to the divine in in ways that that we can't even quite quite fathom or completely kind of neatly articulate. So there's a conceptual seed there, if you like, uh, that just functions as a possibility, and that shifts or introduces um, as a concept. It in- introduces. Um, or it's supportive of soul-making, and it introduces the possibility of seeing and sensing in certain ways.
as we've pointed out before, it therefore becomes valuable and valid. It's valid not so much as a, a, a scientifically provable truth or some kind of religious dogma or credo. It's valid because it's valuable. In other words, because the idea supports soul-making or can support soul-making. So we can and and uh, we can choose to entertain such a view without necessarily believing it as true. And this again, to me, is one of the great gifts of um, of of the, the soul making movement and, and paradigm. So actually, just lingering with with Hegel, I, again, he. Uh, wrote a lot about Christianity as well, and um, in the time he was li- living in, that was the that was the sort of paradigm everyone was in. And um, and for him, it, God didn't choose to create the world and create uh, something that wasn't God, so to speak. And nor was it just simply like everything was of the substance of God. It was more that, in, in Hegel's thinking and his philosophy, it was more that um, God needed to, God had to create the world and create what looked, uh, at, or what might have seemed, as not divine um, uh, in order for his, uh, uh, God's own fulfillment. So, uh, God needed for, if you like, God's own soul-making to create uh, the world, what what seemed to be outside the divine, um, and create it with difficulty, with resistance, with finitude, in order to to realize uh, his, her, its own personhood, to become what it, uh, in essence, really uh, could be. In other words, uh, like, and um, the model there was the sort of Bildungsroman, the sort of um, uh, kind of romantic novel of someone who faces a lot of, um, uh, encounters a lot of struggles and a lot of in- antagonisms, and that builds their uh, personhood, if you like it, uh, it, 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 it makes them who they are. They're shaped by their struggles and by encountering adversity, adver- adversity etc. So the, the self at the beginning is kind of a, 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 a not a full uh, and, and rich personhood until it goes through that encounter and all those difficulties and, and works that, uh, works those difficulties in, in the ways that it can. It's the encounter with the world and the antagonism of of the world and the difficulty of the world. So that personhood, um, whether it's humanly conceived or or the personhood of the divine or a divine, if you like, um, only emerges or only is created or discovered in and through the, the struggle with and the ultimate victory of, over an appropriation of the initially alien. So I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing um, a, a writer called Cyril O'Regan who uh, wrote a, a very interesting book about Hegel and his religious thought. 
and he, he goes on to say, for Hegel, personhood, uh, even divine personhood, is only narratively possible. And that narrative has to um, include uh, suffering and the encounter with suffering and the working through of alienation and difficulty and fragmentation and destruction. So the idea of a divine that doesn't suffer was really not attractive to Hegel. To Hegel. The uh, apathetic divine, the non-suffering divine, wasn't something that, for him, d- didn't qualify as a divine. A divine that doesn't suffer is not worthy of the name divine in this whole understanding of things. And if, if, if I borrow, borrow it and make make the uh, connections, it's like, again, our suffering in and through my journey, your journey, my particulars, my, uh, the particular elements, both of my joys and my particular ways and, if you like, styles of existence, and my dukkha and the way that becomes soul, this is part of, if you like, the narrative of God and it's necessary to God, to the divine, to the Buddha nature, for, for uh its own fulfillment, its own coming into full being. So the goal, so to speak, or, or the, this is a tele, tele, teleological process, we've talked about this before, the causality is kind of in the future, there's something being pulled towards this fullness of soul-making. But in our paradigm, unlike Hegel's, soul-making has no end. It doesn't, it, it potentially has no end. So the point of all this is soul-making. And that can be regarded uh, as the soul-making of the divine. The soul-making that, if you like, my soul uh, goes through, creates, discovers, is is a part of the soul-making of the divine. And again, it's a perception or a conception or conceptual frame that arises out of experience. Not, not, um, or, or that can arise out of experience. Uh, I, I don't mean to insist, it, insist on it as a, as a belief. And I, I think I traced um, the, uh, or an attempt at a sort of phenomenology of soul-making, how the divinity and this whole, this whole kind of perception and conception kind of can arise, sort of said, inevitably even, as one just uh, works with the soul-making. So, in in this, uh, what we could call the path of soul-making, or um, the logos that we have in relation to dukkha, in relation to suffering, um, is not primarily to explain why we suffer uh, or furnish reasons for our dukkha. And sometimes, sometimes that's the way as human beings we wonder why, why. Um, Sometimes explaining suffering 
um, or giving reasons for it doesn't do much for us. What would an answer uh, for why give me? I mean, it may be that a why means that I, why there is dukkha, why this dukkha. Um, maybe if I am blaming myself for it and there's some kind of other reason given that doesn't point the, the blame or the causality of myself, um, uh, then perhaps uh, I can blame myself less. So there's a, there's a point to ask that question, why? You know, it serves a purpose. But if an answer to, uh, the, you know, to, to the why of suffering um, is just an answer, and it gives you no task that is meaningful, it gives me no task or orientation that is meaningful, it hands me uh, no struggle, then maybe that's a kind of soul death. You understand? So when, when, in, in, in creating or discovering or establishing or thinking about a logos, a conceptual framework um, around suffering or with regard to suffering, and begin to like, what place does suffering has, or why does suffering arise, or you know, uh, these kinds of questions. Um, we have to be careful uh, what what we're looking for and um, what we get with certain kinds of answers. So I remember some time ago, uh, I can't remember when it was, a few years ago, um, I was invited to participate in a sort of dialogue with a rabbi um, in London, sort of Buddhist Jewish dialogue. And um, and I can't remember why several people were involved, and they were suggesting sort of themes for the for the for the dialogue that we that he and I could uh, sort of chew over together from Buddhist and Jewish perspectives. And um, it it seemed that a lot of people were suggesting this question. I think it's called theodicy in in uh, religious sort of in theology. It's it's like the the uh, concept or the explanation of why bad things happen or why suffering arises or what is the the, the point? What is the place of suffering? Or um, if God is good, how come there is suffering? And that sort of thing. Um, and it seemed also when I got there and with the audience, uh, if I remember, there were also several questions along that theme um, for instance why do bad things happen to good people and um, that kind of question and and yeah if I remember I think it was even suggested as the main theme of the evening um, having grown up in a sort of religious uh, Jewish religious environment I recognize there's something uh, particularly I think for some reason um, is quite a common question in Jewish circles um, and I think I, someone asked in the audience, and I think I, I responded um, that you know we have to be careful with questions because sometimes we can we can ask questions like why. I was a why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering? Why? Um, and it sounds like a question because it's got the word why in it. But actually, we're not really asking a question. We're just uh, kind of complaining out loud or to ourselves. Um, it's uh, in Yiddish. They say kvetching, not a not a question. Kvetching means to complain. Um, 
in in a Buddhist paradigm, uh, you know, one one would explain suffering um, as as the karma from kilesas, as the outflow from uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, that viewpoint or that answer may uh, uh, give us some some way of going forward in the present. In other words, it do, it may give us a task um, if we pick it up in the right way. Um, it, as I said, it gives us then a struggle. My struggle, my task then is in relation to these kilesas and what, what can I do then to purify, to, to uh, etc. So that gives us that kind of answer, that, that kind of very basic Buddhist answer gives us something of a framework um, around which to structure our practice and our intention, our aspiration, as I said, to purify and eventually um, eventually not make karma, uh, etc., in, in, in a sort of Buddhist vision. Uh, in the soul-making paradigm, or logos, um, the answers for the service of soul-making, an answer to the place of suffering, or the purpose of suffering, or the why of suffering, or explaining it, or a reason for suffering, um, we want the answer to be, uh, in the service of soul-making, it should support and stimulate soul-making. In other words, we want to adopt, entertain, engage conceptual frameworks, ways of looking, ideas that um, open, support, nourish, deepen soul-making, increase soul-making with respect to and in relation to our dukkha. You understand this is a different paradigm than just ending dukkha and just finding some explanation as, oh, okay, that's why they're suffering. And that um, those those kind of conceptual frameworks um, that might support soul making, those kind of ideas will involve the dukkha itself becoming image, being sensed with soul. And conversely, sensing our dukkha with soul, sensing it imaginally, will tend to expand and stretch and impregnate our concepts and conceptual frameworks, our logos. So if we um, open up the logos and the conceptual framework with certain ideas, then it's easier to uh, sense the dukkha with soul, sense it imaginally. And sensing the dukkha imaginally, re-enchanting the dukkha, having him being able to um, sense it with soul, our dukkha, this dukkha, um, will because of the soul-making dynamic that we explain with the Eurocyclogos stretching, it will open up our ideas and eventually bring, uh, make available to us accessible um, concepts and ideas, conceptual frameworks, whole kind of um, uh, views or ideas about what the cosmos is and what existence is that we can then move in and out, that we're called in and out of. So that's one point for right now. And the, and the second is, um, if we are thinking in terms of uh, reasons and explanations uh, around suffering, um, if 
the mind tends to go that way. Um, why do we tend to think causally and in terms of temporal origins of beginnings? Okay, so um, we tend to place the cause in the past, and I've, I've talked about this before, but I, I really think it's important. We, we're really not used to thinking in terms of telos. I am suffering right now because I'm called to something at which I have not yet arrived. I'm called to something I can only dimly work out. I'm called to something that's going to take some work and some re, um, reworking and reframing and um, uh, turning upside down, inside out, and breaking and stretching. I'm, I'm there is suffering because of that. The suffering is in the service of this telos, rather than the suffering is a cause. Or it, it, sorry, the suffering is a result of a cause in the past. It's such an unfashionable and uh, rare way of conceiving now. And in, in, as, as pointed out, um, Hegel uh, was fond of that kind of what's called teleological uh, causality, teleological way of thinking. Very, very different way of, con- you know, looking at this dukkha going on now. We immediately go back to the power. Come back to this. Um, we immediately go back. Well, it's caused by um, what happened to me when I was a child. It's caused by my family situation. It's caused by something intrauterine. It's caused by past life. It's caused. Da da. It's always past. Maybe. There's a whole other way to, uh, or a whole other conception that we can entertain at times. Again, this really isn't dogmatic. I'm not suggesting replacing one complete, one so-called truth with another so-called or so-claimed truth. But we might, it might be interesting to, to be able to kind of switch between, move in and out of these very different conceptions, almost almost pol- polarly uh, opposite conceptions of causality cause in the past leading to the present cause somehow strangely teleologically in the future so to speak and uh, explaining if you like my suffering now this dukkha now again it might arise through the practice soul making practice um, or it may be something what would it it be to just play with this not as a replacement for always but very different view, <clears throat> very different um, what then unfolds in the present moment, because, because of course, we're bringing a different way of looking, because part of the way of looking is the concept, and, if, and part of conceptuality is causality. So if the conceptu- conceptu- conception of causality is different, then the conce- conception in the way of looking is different, the way of looking is different, and because of dependent arising, what unfolds is different. What is sensed in the moment is also different. So then, practically, the, the question becomes, what can be created and discovered through this dukkha when the Logos gives it place and relationship to soul? Now, it can still do that in a sort of, um, uh, in the conception of uh, causal uh, causes in the past, temporal priority. 
But what if it was the other way around? What can be created, discovered through this dukkha when the Logos gives it place and relationship to soul? The Logos gives this dukkha a place and gives it a place also potentially teleologically. We may not exactly uh, see clearly at all where, where, where it's headed. And what limits do we place on what can be uh, created, discovered through that? In other words, do we only discover that um, clinging and craving bring suffering? Hugely important to see. Or do we create and discover more than just that insight as well? It's a really important insight. Fabrication, clinging, uh, clinging and craving bring bring suffering. Or is there more too? We create and discover more than that. Are we placing limits on what can be created and discovered through this dukkha? The telos is open. It's not so much an arrival point as a movement, an open-ended movement. And this, the, the creation discovery that's possible through this very dukkha is potentially open-ended if we don't limit it. So all this, and you can probably tell, or, or it may have occurred to you by now, um, all this brings up questions um, regarding the uh, contextualization of the soul-making logos, if you like, um, with respect to the, the Four Noble Truths. Um, and wrapped up in that, it also brings up questions of the um, interpretation of the Four Noble Truths. I've talked about this before. I think, in especially in those think in those talks, questioning awakening and Buddhism beyond modernism and in praise of restlessness. So Four Noble Truths, Four Noble Truths. Everyone agrees on the Four Noble Truths. But what is dukkha? How are we regarding that? What is it exactly that we're addressing? That's dukkha. And what does the third noble truth, freedom from dukkha, look like? And what exactly is involved in the second noble truth, the arising and the causing of dukkha? And again, just listening to, um, say, um, uh, the range of Guy House teachers, what, what a range there is. Everyone uses the language of four noble truths, and yet they're, they're kind of just um, empty words that get filled with really very different meanings uh, and ranges and directions and concerns and uh, developments. So someone, you know, compare, uh, if we're talking about Four Noble Truths, compare a sort of vision, if you like, um, where um, the, thir- the, the third noble truth, uh, the freedom from dukkha, really means ending rebirth once and for all. Dukkha really means this this whole uh, being caught up in this whole 
endless cycle of samsara, of being reborn in different realms and worlds and circumstances and uh, uh, all that pain and ending all that uh, with the ending of rebirth and arahantship uh, is the priority and is really the priority of the path. That's the whole gearing and uh, conception. Everything in the path is, is aimed at heading towards that. Uh, compare that with a sort of probably more common uh, version in our times, in modern times, of just the path as really primarily concerned with erasing and um, doing away with unnecessary suffering, and primarily doing that by simplifying the way the mind um, gets entangled in things and makes things uh, complex with all its ideas and its relationships and its selfing and business like that, and just uh, if really draining out all that unnecessary um, suffering by through simplification and and letting go, and then that becomes the vision of the third noble truth, the vision of what we're addressing. It's the first noble truth and the vision of the freedom from it. And the entanglement and complication, papancha, in in that in that meaning of just the mind's kind of <coughs> um, complicating things, uh, is is viewed as a second noble truth. And in a way, you know, sometimes I've, I've alluded to this before. Sometimes that kind of emphasis on simplifying is exactly uh, uh, at times in opposition to um, soul making which enriches, gives more dimension, gives complexity, invites the complexity and fluidity of Logos, etc. Uh, and also invites image and the imaginal imagination, all that. So, in those, um, in those, those two uh, uh, views or paradigms, of, of the Four Noble Truths, ending rebirth as the priority, or this erasing uh, unnecessary suffering, obliterating unnecessary suffering by, by simplifying uh, one's mind um, and one's relationship with the world. Um, in a way, there's no uh, no conscious, I would like to say, there's no conscious place or uh, place in the Logos um, for soul-making. There's no place given uh, in the obvious articulation of either of those for soul-making. I'll come back to that because I want to emphasize the word conscious there. Um, But another paradigm, again, quite popular these days, is a kind of what we might call kind of existentialist paradigm. Um, Similar-ish to the second one, except there's even more sort of... uh, Focusing on dukkha, as if one hangs on to the dukkha of existence and the the kind of tragic impermanence of the existential situation that we find ourselves in, um, just here in this world, everyone and everything and ourselves impermanent, and uh, seeks to alleviate some of the extra suffering of that, but wants to hang on to the kind of um, uh, undoubted basic real fact, facticity of uh, the 
the, the dukkha of existence, the tragic impermanence of this world. And there is nothing else but that. And so our task, uh, and the third noble truth, is kind of um, reconciling ourselves to that tragedy and that, and that tragic impermanence, this kind of existential predicament. Sometimes in kind of almost kind of clinging on to a vision of that uh, and an um, uh, insistence on the reality and that only uh, the, the, the existential predicament read that way being the only reality um, and the tragic impermanence. One emphasizes the tragic impermanence more than the particular personhood or the particulars or the personhoods that are lost through impermanence. It's almost like the impermanence is more uh, more important or more interesting or more clung to than the actual particular and the wonder that is lost and the beauty and the depths of that beauty of this particular or this element of being or that person and that personhood. And in, in that whole clinging, there's a kind of um, rigidity sometimes and a, a, a dogmatic assertion, no divinity allowed. Even if you have a sense of divinity in your meditations or your being in nature or your whatever it is, um, it's a just illusion. It's a priori regarded as an illusion, a priori regarded as something to dismiss. Even the idea that, you, that it's a worthy, if you don't say it's a discovery, it's a creation, even that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a creation that's taking you away from the primacy and the kind of um, dominant, uh, hard reality of our existential facticity, of the tragic impermanence of ourselves and of everything we encounter. So there's a kind of there's really there's a kind of clinging that can creep in. For some people, with with such a view of uh, and, and the four noble truths is given in that view, um, or that view kind of frames fills out the meaning of the different elements of the four noble truths. There's a kind of rigidity and there's a kind of disallowing of what might actually emerge organically in the perception, in the experience of dimensionality, of divinity, of soul, etc. But, in those three views, the ending rebirth as a priority, the erasing unnecessary suffering by simplifying the mind and the relationship with things, um, and this, I don't know what to call it, kind of modernist existentialist focus on the uh, existential predicament and the hard reality of the tragic impermanence of things. Um, You've heard me say this before, I'm sure, but I would say, not kind of believing the... uh, the kind of official versions of whatever uh, is is spelled out there in the doctrine. I would actually say, look through uh, look through the understanding of a soul making logos at what's going on there, and soul making and fantasy always creeps in, or it's always there actually where there is love, where we something is really alive for us, where we're committed. 
So any any of those paradigms where a person is actually committed, they say I might really say they only teach the ending of rebirth and the priority, and it's all geared towards that. But actually, if they're on fire with that, their soul making uh, and fantasy crept into the whole thing, uh, pervading the whole thing around the edges. The same with um, someone who keeps emphasizing simplicity, etc., and letting go and um, erasing that unnecessary suffering. There's still the, the talk about, uh, it creeps in, uh, talks about beauty and something that uh, inspires not just the heart, but the soul. Um, or again, in the existentialist paradigm, one may kind of be enamored of a certain fantasy of self and world, etc., situated in a certain fantastical narrative that gives something to the soul that for that person at that time is, to a certain extent, soul-making. So wherever something's really alive, wherever we love something, wherever we're really committed to something, um, soul-making fantasy is already there. It's already pervading. It's already in the cracks. I think part part of this to me is really important because um, uh, I, I would say it's like if we don't recognize that and identify it and admit it, we're we're not seeing what, what Derrida would call what's at the margins of our philosophy. So we have this neat um, arrangement, and we don't kind of see what's at the margins. We have this neat arrangement of ideas, and it all fits, perhaps, what the Buddha said, and we can translate terms, and that, that means this, and we interpret that this way. And uh, But actually, there's all this stuff at the margins, which is actually where a lot of our juice is coming from, and a lot of our fire, and a lot of the beauty, and actually a lot of the whatever soul-making is going on. So to me, a fuller path, a fuller logos, a fuller conceptual framework needs to acknowledge it, acknowledge this thing called soul-making and, and this thing called eros that we don't really uh, ha- have words for, that don't usually get included in the paradigm, but they're there and they're functioning and they're operating and they're vital and vitalizing. So a more adequate kind of... Uh, conception of the path or conceptual framework and also in relation to the Four Noble Truths needs to include, to, to me, uh, I would say, needs to or, or is made more adequate, let's say, uh, and richer by including those elements. Uh, and actually, if, and again, if we stay with this interpretation and contextualization with regards to the Four Noble Truths, you know that there's, there's this is what we outlined in kind of Hegel's idea in terms of suffering and where it's going. Um, but more, more importantly, um, there's this uh, vision of a path that gives soul-making priority that uh, re-enchants Dukkha and recognizes the... Uh, uh, eventually recognizes the necessity for the divine or to the divine of this dukkha, this particular narrative that I'm in. So all quite different uh, kind of situatings or conceivings of what suffering is, how it arises, what 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 we're doing with it, where we're trying to go with it. I'm pretty sure I said, um, I think it was in the path of the imaginal tree, and it might have been in the soul-making talks there. Um, the talk's entitled Soul-Making, I think, but I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> that actually, I think that um, how we 
conceive of soul making in relation to uh, ending suffering, in relation to the Four Noble Truths and that framework. How we contextualize uh, or intercontextualize the two um, depends on our individual kind of soul styles. Um, or our individual soul moods at any time, uh, and our individual fantasies, part of which is just where we are in our own kind of movement with all this stuff. In other words, um, one could conceive of um, the whole soul-making paradigm as a movement kind of beyond the boundaries of um, the Four Noble Truths and, um, and uh, sort of classical Buddha Dharma. One could conceive of it as just gently pushing at the edges and stretching it a bit more, but essentially expanding what Buddha Dharma is for uh, contemporary, uh, for, for modern times. Or one could conceive of it and uh, articulate it as just being within the Buddha Dharma. It's just it's just pinpointing certain. Um, aspects that perhaps don't get so highlighted, but it's all within the paradigm of the Four Noble Truths as we see them. How we do that, where we stand in, let's say, any of those three positions or any of those three um, conceptual uh, conceptualizations, conceptual structures, um, seems to me to be itself a kind of um, uh, a soul question. One person tends towards a bit of um, one person tends towards a kind of radical wall breaking kind of identity or barrier breaking identity. One person tends to want to identify with kind of the tradition and what's more conservative and feel themselves within that. One person wants to see their their soul as kind of on the edge of what's being developed and stretched and we can go to a whole kind of meta level here and um in a way pointing out that the that the very way one might want to conceive of this whole uh, logos that we're unfolding um, itself depends on individual soul styles, individual soul journeys, individual soul moods. In other words, it might even change from day to day for a person. That realization um, itself is radical because it gives a kind of primacy to uh, to soul to the imaginal, to fantasy. So to kind of not be too bothered, do you understand? To not be too bothered whether I conceive it this way or that way. We could do it this way, we could do it that way, we could do it that way. It depends on soul. It depends on soul style, on soul mood. That itself is quite a, a kind of radical position, if you like, that gives primacy to soul. And I've, I've said this before, I'm pretty sure. Well, let's stay with this a little bit, because, um, again, I'm pretty sure I've said this, but I've pointed out, when I, when I talked about the different kind of fantasies we have of our path and goal, that what I call the medical model, the model that really conceives of what we're doing and the direction of what we're doing as 
the alleviation of suffering, either the ending of suffering or the alleviation of suffering, what I call the medical model, um, which is actually a model that the Buddha himself used deliberately um, framing his teachings in an analogous way to the way a doctor would frame things in his time in India. Um, and I, I pointed out, and I still um, hold with it, that it may be that if we're too wedded to a medical model of the path and our path, if we emphasize that medical model too much and uh, there's not much else going on in our fantasy and conception of the path, that restriction of the fantasy and the conception of the path may itself limit the soul-making. We're emphasizing too much a certain model that that, that, that uh, concerns itself uh, primarily with uh, alleviating suffering. And there may be something in that, the limitations in that intention that limit um, the soul-making that's then available to us. Because an alternative would be, and I know some of you um, feel this way, uh, at least at times, at least at times, um, the sense that, or the feeling that something is more important to me than ending dukkha, than this third noble truth of ending dukkha. Actually, to be honest, I care more um, about something else. Something else is more important than ending dukkha, whatever that would even look like to end dukkha. So we could frame things that way, we could kind of arrange things that way so that the soul-making paradigm, that being more important than ending dukkha as one point of view. Or we could also do something else or frame things in a different way and suggest that much uh, of the dukkha in modern times uh, that you and I experience, I mean, um, there's a lot of uh, horrific suffering in the world. Um, but much of the dukkha of modern times comes from a kind of the loss of or the absence of meaningfulness in our lives. Um, or any sense that... Uh, any meaningfulness that we uh, can feel in our life is any is really deep uh, has any kind of deep roots ontologically that we can kind of relate to. It's only a construct. Um, a loss or an absence of the sense of dimensionality of existence, of the depths of the divinity a loss of enchantment, a loss of a sense of um, duty that again is given to us in a way that's more than just my personal uh, decision or invention. And it may be, or one could say and suggest that um, these losses, these absences of soul really, for much of modern life, or pervading much of modern life in our culture, um, then exacerbates, gives rise to a lot of the ecological crises we face. Because we look at nature as something uh, completely flat and lacking in sacredness. And, And we can't 
galvanize a care for it that that um, or a depth of care, a depth of reverence that would come from sensing it was so. So if we if we view things that way, if we if we frame things that way and make that suggestion that, hey, look where a lot of the dukkha is uh, coming from in our modern um, kind of affluent Western existence, and um, and and what ensues from that lack, from that loss, from that absence of soul then we could say that the movement of soul-making, the engagement of the soul-making dynamic in that whole direction is actually uh, reducing suffering because it, it, it heals, it addresses that lack, or that absence of soul. And therefore, because it's just a part or a dimension or a level of the suffering that gets healed, we can place the whole thing, the whole paradigm of soul-making, squarely and easily in the Four Noble Truths. Again, uh, with our particular interpretation of what exactly is involved in Dukkha, the first noble truth, and what exactly is entailed by the, the um, freedom from Dukkha, and how exactly uh, Dukkha arises. But the whole thing is then framed within the Four Noble Truths. You know, if I, if I share just um, personally... Um, hardest thing for me, and again, this is just, just personal, but the hardest thing for me in being ill uh, the last um, two and a half years was not the original diagnosis and realizing what that meant to have pancreatic cancer. It was not the operation and, and the kind of the kind of severe incapacity and weakness that, that I had for about a year afterwards, um, and, and still carry, really. It was not um, the prognosis uh, when they found uh, the, the, where the cancer was at and all that. The hardest thing for me, uh, in terms of the most dukkha for me, um, it was not the you know the idea of dying. It, it was it was going for the weekly chemotherapy infusions at the oncology department in, in a hospital nearby, which is about an hour away. Um, that was the hardest thing for me, and it was something very particular that was the hardest thing. It really was, um, I have to say, at the edge of my practice, at the edge of what I could, what I could um, kind of embrace with my practice in a way that actually uh, significantly reduced the, the difficulty of it. So it wasn't the unpleasantness and the pain of um, feeling sick and toxic from the chemotherapy. Um, that that was all. All that stuff was there, you know. And 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 yeah, it was definitely difficult. Um, nor was it being, you know, you've got this infusion thing and this drip computer machine going, and it, uh, it, it's in your veins. And I had uh, chronic urgent diarrhea from the chemotherapy and post-operation. So you, you, you're you in this ward with this, you know, hooked up to all this con- kind of considerable encumbrance of contraption and knowing I'm, I'm sitting there and I might suddenly and urgently have to have to get up and run to the toilet um, uh, to, to move my bowels um, with all that kind of chemotherapy paraphernalia attached to me and infusing and, and whatnot. 
Nor was it the, the, the most difficult thing was not like being really cogently reminded of my own mortality and the possibility of my dying very soon just by virtue of being in that situation, feeling the way I was feeling and having all this kind of heavy-duty uh, chemotherapy and all that. And nor was it actually the fact of just seeing so much suffering. I mean, sometimes it's pretty grim in the chemotherapy ward in terms of, you know, what people are going through and what kind of state they're in. Sometimes young people, you know, and the other patients. And nor was it the fact that the, the staff and the doctors or nurses were unkind. For the, for the most part, actually, they were, they were very kind and caring and, and helpful and sort of, you know, pleasant. Um, the most difficult thing for me, I can only speak for myself, the most difficult thing for me to handle and to practice skillfully and kind of adequately with was the soullessness of the place. That was the most, that was the hardest thing. It's been the hardest thing so far with the osteoporosis, with the chemotherapy, post-operation, with the diagnosis, with the prognosis, with the possibility of dying, with the sleepless nights, with the lack of energy, with the restriction and what I can do and where I can go and hardly going out the house. Hardest thing was the soullessness of that, of that oncology department for me. The absence there of any uh, beauty or any what seemed the absence of any consideration of beauty or any consideration of what we would call soulfulness in in the way it was designed and how it worked it's that plastic and stale actually diesel filled toxic air being recycled and um, death everywhere, the possibility of death all around, vividly there, and yet not kind of um, being engaged or talked about or met soulfully, it seemed to me. So I could say I was not able to perceive uh, the soul in that place. I could, I could say it like that. And all of this, all this soullessness, when, in the face of death, in the face of possible, uh, possible, the proximity of death, the possible proximity of death, the possible soonness of death, uh, one needs soulfulness the most. That was the most difficult thing for me. Someone said, I don't know if it's true, I think it must be true, as there's some anecdote about um, Oscar Wilde's dying words in, uh, in, I don't know where he was, staying uh, in bed and dying. And his final dying words, uh, he, looking at the wallpaper in his room and saying out loud to the wallpaper, so to speak, one of us has to go. Uh, and... Um, you know, thinking about actually, you know, he's he's a funny guy, Oscar Wilde, but he he was also, I think, very soulful and concerned with soul. And it may be that um, that those dying words were not 
so much, or not just a kind of comically out of place flippancy and superficiality next to death, just a concern with the kind of decor, but actually a concern uh, uh, with beauty and a statement of the, the fundamental and absolute importance of beauty as a necessity for soul. I mean, I, I don't know. But I think about those words again, which I used to find just kind of kind of witty. Oh, it's good to go out with a, with a kind of witty aphorism. Maybe there's a whole other level there. You know, we could say um, beauty, soul-making, soulfulness, they're kind of useless values. In, in a certain, like beauty is a luxury and, and soulfulness is a kind of, we regard it as a luxury and it doesn't really achieve much, you know, materially and uh, in a way they're useless. But maybe the useless values are the most important and, and the most worthwhile. We can feel that they are when uh, certainly not instead of having our basic prerequisites met of, of um, food and shelter and clothing and warmth healthy, healthy life for the body, safe society. Maybe when the basic prerequisites are met, when the sort of gross neuroses are dealt with and the inner critic is kind of uh, a little bit uh, at least placated or, or healed, when the, the most difficult psychological patterns are healed, when there's a kind of basic kindness pervading, then what? Then what? End suffering? End all suffering? Somewhere in the Pali Canon, the, the Buddha um, says maybe several times or implies that um, basic prerequisites, you know, of, of uh, uh, the basic prerequisites of life, food, shelter, um, medicine, etc., um, clothing, need to be there. Um, to um, allow or need to be there as a kind of basis for practice in the path, for the quest for what is most important and most worthwhile, which was Nibbana. So this, we pointed out, you know, this needs to be there. Without that, you can't really give your attention and give your energy and give your commitment to, uh, to trying to reach Nibbana, which is actually the most important thing. But in the paradigm of uh, endless cycles uh, and possibly infinite um, cycles of uh, death and rebirth and the um, that perilous process sort of adrift on a vast cosmic ocean of enormous, you know, infinite spans of time and um, uh, infinite worlds, perhaps, and just and and just being reborn, dependent on a karma one didn't even know what that was. All the vicissitudes and ups and downs and kind of wild um, circumstances that one found oneself in. So much suffering is at stake in whether that just goes on 
goes on and on and on with all that suffering or whether whether one can find a way out of that endless, endless suffering. So for him, this uh, reading him as actually that that vision of, of Nibbana, that vision of the third noble truth was actually what he what he was um, orienting towards. So much suffering at stake. That was the most important thing. But if if you know our version of awakening or version of the third noble truth doesn't involve or assume all those infinite cycles of rebirth and that degree of dukkha. And again, he was um, in a world where there wasn't uh, modern medicine and painkillers and antibiotics and um, there's not even the, the possibility uh, that, that people would have that. You know, now at least we have the possibility, it's not an actuality in our world, but the possibility that everyone in the world has access to modern medicine and painkillers, which is not the case right now. Antibiotics, etc. But for him, it's like looking around, just what horrendous suffering, and you're kind of on this um, roulette wheel of of uh, where you end up, life after life after life. And if you have a good one, we probably have a bad one because you've probably got some bad karma uh, waiting to ripen that you don't even know about. So in the absence, or, or when we don't, um, when our vision or conception of awakening doesn't involve or assume all that kind of infinite, all those infinite cycles of rebirth and all the kind of horrendous, um, you know, pitfalls of of that uh, perilous roller coaster, um, what then is the most important and worthwhile thing to practice for, to practice towards? after basic prerequisites are met. Again, the Buddha said, after basic prerequisites are met, this um, ending of the cycle of rebirth, ending of this um, again and again and again, in ad infinitum, the pain of birth, um, being separated from what we love, etc., 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 and death. What's the most important thing for him? It was ending rebirth after the basic prerequisites are met. If we don't have that paradigm anymore, and some, many of you don't, what then becomes the most important thing? And could, in a way, the most important thing be something that is in some way kind of useless? Soul-making, beauty, becomes the, the, the most worthwhile So there's a <coughs> suffering that I think probably you wouldn't be listening at this point <coughs> if this wasn't the case for you, but there's the suffering of the absence of soul, the absence of soulfulness. We're missing something. There's the suffering of the, the failure to honor uh, what seems or um, is from a certain perspective useless. It's useless, but I miss it. And something, when when we miss it, when there is that absence, when it's not addressed, when it's not included, when it's not um, allowed, when it's inhibited, there is a suffering. Suffering of the absence of soul. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.